Well, last Lord's Day, in our systematic theology lessons, we looked at the Tenth Commandment, thus finishing up our study of the doctrine of the law of God as a part of our introduction to systematic theology series. And so, we should be moving on to a new doctrine today. However, I will not be doing that today because I needed to get with the pastors and strategize where to go from here. But I still wanted to take advantage of today. So what I thought I would do today is, after having spent the last four months or so looking at the law of God, its intent, its scope, and so on, I thought it would be good to consider something that is said in larger catechism question 125, or excuse me, 152, which asks this question after having looked at each of the Ten Commandments. It asks, what does... What does every sin deserve at the hands of God? I think that's a very important and wonderful question to consider. I have often thought, especially lately, how many of us ever stop to really think seriously about the weight and gravity of our disobedience against God. Now, obviously, when you're out about in the world and you're among non-believers working and living among them, you see that these people don't care at all. They do, as Paul says in Romans 1.32, they not only disobey God, but give approval to those who disobey. But sadly, I think even in the church, even among those who profess to know God, I often wonder just how seriously we take our sin. Even among those who profess to know Christ and to follow him, there exist many who just don't seem to take these things seriously. They don't take church seriously. They don't take fellowship with the saints seriously. They don't take sitting under the preaching and teaching of the word seriously. They don't take the sacraments seriously. And we might as well add to that, in light of our pastor's sermons, they don't take church discipline seriously. And I think a big part of the problem, I think part of the reason why these things are not taken seriously is because people don't take their sins seriously. They don't understand the weight and gravity of what is at stake here. And so I really like this question 152 because after having considered all of the do's and don'ts of God's moral law, it then stops us to consider just what exactly is at stake. This is probably one of the more important questions of the catechism that you'll read, and you need to take some serious time to meditate and think upon. It's literally a question of life and death. So let's just take a few minutes today then to consider the question and then its answer and break it down a little bit. Again, the question is, what does every sin deserve at the hands of God? And the answer they give, every sin, even the least, being against the sovereignty, goodness, and holiness of God, and against his righteous law, deserveth his wrath and curse, curse, both in this life and that which is to come, and cannot be expiated but by the blood of Christ. Now, as with so many of the catechism's questions and answers, we're given a very well-thought-out, well-worded answer that basically outlines itself which is great because I'm not very creative with outlines, and so this makes it easier. (laughs) But you'll notice in this answer, there are basically three parts to this answer. 
One, there's the nature of sin and of its offense. Secondly, there's the wages of sin that's described based on the nature and offense of sin. And then lastly, the answer to sin is given. So again, let's just take a few minutes and look at these three parts. First, let's consider the nature of sin and of its offense. Beloved, every sin, no matter how small, no matter how insignificant you think it is, or unimportant you may think that it is, is an act that offends against four things here. First, and this is actually the last thing that's mentioned, but I'm just mentioning first. Every sin is an act against God's righteous law. 1 John 3, 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is anomia, the Greek word. Every single time you fail to do something that God requires of you to do, or you do something he prohibits you from from doing, again, no matter how small or insignificant you may think it is, you are behaving in defiance against God and his justice. Romans 8, starting in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set the minds on the things of the flesh. For those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Understand, beloved, that the mindset of man in his fallen state, that's what it means here to be of the flesh, is that of a hatred of God, a hostility towards God. It's a state of a deep-seated ill will toward God. And that hatred and hostility is going to reveal itself in your life and how you respond to his word and to his law. Again, beloved, I don't care how often and how loud you want to shout from the rooftops on social media that you love God, that you and God are friends, and He loves you. If you are one to just brush aside and take casually what God commands you to do and prohibits you from doing in His Word, then you're not a friend of His. You're an enemy. James 4 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Whoever makes himself comfortable with, whoever makes himself a constant companion of, a friend of the world, that is, of the people and the values and the beliefs and morals of those who oppose God's word, that oppose the values and beliefs and morals that he's expressed in his word, those people are enemies of God. They are God-haters. And God hates them. They are hostile. They're at war with God. And friends, that's a war you are not going to win. Just read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will tell of the, of the, the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Beloved, every time you're tempted to sin, keep this in mind. In every sin, you are expressing ill will and hatred toward God. And of course, with that, God is not pleased. Secondly, every sin is an act against the sovereignty of God. James 2, 10 through 11 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Notice here, friends, that James says that if you fail in one point of the law, you become guilty of all of it. Now, why is that? I think there's two reasons. One, as we have seen studying the commandments, we've noticed that each of the ten commandments overlap with the other nine. The commandments are interconnected in many ways. But not only that, all ten of the commandments come from the same source. James says that the same God who said, do not commit adultery, is the same God who says, do not murder. And so as you look at each of the commandments and how they connect with one another, as well as their intent and the scope of them, covering every area of our lives, what you see is that God's law is actually an expression of his sovereignty. It's an expression of God's rule over our lives and every single aspect of our lives. Nothing is off limits to his rule. And so you don't get to compartmentalize your life. You don't get to say to God, well, I'll take seriously what you say about killing people, but I'm not going to take seriously what you say about what I do with my friends where we're out or what I do with my boyfriend or girlfriend when we're on dates. That's none of your business. No, friends, that's not how it works. The same God who said don't murder is the same God who also says to you don't commit adultery. God has addressed all of life. No area of your life is insignificant or off limits to him. And at any point where you disobey God, no matter how small or insignificant you may think it is, you are declaring that God is not sovereign. And beloved, if God is not ruler over all, he's ruler over nothing. If God is not sovereign, he's not God. We've talked about that when studying the attributes of God. It's, a, it's, a, it's the essence of who he is. And again, as we read in Psalm 2, you may be able to, to deceive yourselves and others into thinking that God is not sovereign. You may attempt, as those rulers of the earth, to burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords, that is, to reject God's sovereign control and restraints over your life. But you're going to be in for a big surprise when judgment day comes. Psalms 2 says Christ will break you and shatter you into pieces to make the point that he is sovereign. Thirdly, every sin is an act against God's goodness. 
You know, we saw this when we looked at the preface to the Ten Commandments. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God brought them out of bondage, out of slavery. God was, this is an expression of God's mercy, of his kindness and his great, uh, graciousness. God is full of abundant generosity and love and mercy and grace. And beloved, when we sin against him, we are expressing ingratitude and an abuse of his goodness. Paul writes in Romans 2, 3 and 4, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Beloved, God's kindness should lead you to repent of your disobedience. And so when you don't repent, when you continue in your sin, you are presuming on the riches of his kindness and of his forbearance and patience. That is, you're despising his kindness. You're despising his goodness. And when you despise God's goodness and kindness, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For Paul says in verse 8, those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Beloved, what does your life revealed in your daily actions say about your appreciation of God's kindness and goodness? And then fourthly, every sin is an act against God's holiness. Every thought, every word, every deed of our lives should reflect God's own hatred of wickedness and reflect God's love for righteousness. That God loves righteousness and hates wicked, obviously, is all over Scripture. Again, for sake of time, we can just read Hebrews 1.9. For you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So, beloved, when you sin, you not only are saying something about yourself, but you're, in essence, lying about who God is. When you sin, you insult his holiness and do not reflect him in the way that you should. Leviticus eleven forty four says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Well, Having briefly then considered then the nature of sin and its offense, the catechism then states what such offense deserves. It says every sin, even the least, deserves his wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. Every sin as an act of defiance against God and his law and his word, his holiness, his goodness and his sovereignty, justly then deserves the infliction of God's displeasure of his wrath and anger. And such will be the case for those who remain unrepentant both in this life and in the life to come. Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And then in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Well, we speak highly and much about the love of God, which is and rightly so. 
But understand that this loving God is also a holy and righteous God that hates sin. And his anger burns daily with a holy hatred against all who do not repent and turn to him for forgiveness of sins. In Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6, we read, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Well, that then leads me to the third and final part of this answer. And that is the solution. It says sin cannot be expiated but by the blood of Christ. I like this quote from Moorcraft because he's a nice, neat package, sums it up well. Since every sin of every human being deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come, does that mean that every human being will suffer that eternal punishment? Two explanations must be given in answer to that question. First, since the nature of sin never changes, and since what it deserves never changes, therefore, if sinners are to be reconciled with God, their sins must be expiated. That is, their sins must be forgiven and the curse of the law removed. But second, no expiation is possible without a propitiation for, quote, and this is Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. God's anger must be turned away by a substitutionary sacrifice. And God's justice must be satisfied by that sacrifice before forgiveness of sin is possible with God. And sin cannot be expiated but by the blood of Christ. Christ's sacrificial death is the one and only propitiation provided by God. Hebrews 2.17, He, that is Christ, had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so what may we learn from this consideration of sin and what it deserves? James Fisher writes, we learn of the amazing love of God in transferring the guilt and punishment of sin to the glorious surety, making him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. So below, I encourage you to meditate on these things. Think much about this. As I've said in a previous lesson, the degree to which you understand your need for a savior will flow from the, de the degree to which you understand the weight and gravity of your sin. If you find yourself loving him little, of thinking lightly of his church, of his sacraments, of his word, of discipline, Consider whether you have thought too little and lightly of your sin. I'll close with this story from Luke 7. Something me and JP have been talking a lot about lately. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. 
And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, you, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he counseled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he counseled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. 